You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lasseter. On today's episode, I speak with Amanda Duamaral, who is an educator, activist, and co-founder of Fiveable, a social learning network for students. She spent half a decade teaching high school history in Oakland, California, where her passion for creating equitable education opportunities was ignited. Amanda has been a vocal advocate for inclusive history curriculum and is active within the Milwaukee tech community. Since launching, the company has served roughly 4 million students and has achieved a 92% pass rate on the advanced placement exams, according to the company, with over 4 million in venture capital raised to date from investors, including BBG Ventures, Chelsea Clint's Metro, Dora Ventures, Max Stick Ventures, Cream City Venture Capital, Spiro Ventures. We had an investor from Spiro on, Mark, uh, recently, uh, check out a previous episode. And they have up to half a million students use Fiveable on a monthly basis. With an incredible 170 employees on LinkedIn at seasonal peak, including part-time, the company continues to grow. You'll hear more about it on the episode. We talked about living and working with your coworkers in the early stage of a startup. What being a teacher teaches you about being a startup CEO, how to do premium pricing, doing your first acquisition. And why have they hired dozens of students? You'll enjoy this one, so please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Amanda, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. So I have to ask, in what way is being a tech startup CEO different or similar than being a teacher? (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, in some ways, managing and supporting and, and being around teenagers all day was easier than being around some of the investors and adults that were around. Is that Um, because they're not acting like adults? (laughs) You know, I mean, I feel like I always, as a teacher, loved being around young people because I just felt like they, I don't know, they, they're just learning. So they're, they're moldable. Whereas sometimes being around adults is hard because they, you know, they may react to something or I don't know, something might happen and they might, and you're, and you're just like, but you're like an adult. Why are you acting like that? So in some ways being a CEO is harder in, in, in so many ways, because there's a different dynamic in just the people I'm around. And in some ways it's easier. I mean, being a teacher was incredibly difficult. Just the, the level of like PTSD I'm having right now, just like scrolling through TikTok, watching people go back to school is outrageous. And even though this is a stressful job, it I have the resources I need. I can work remotely. You know, I don't deal with like a copier machine breaking. <laughs> so there's like a lot of things that are better and some things that um, were easier as a teacher. And are there particular skills that you feel like you picked up either a teacher or before otherwise that you bring to the startup CEO role? Oh, definitely. I think what I found Like when I made the jump, I I really had never thought that I would become an entrepreneur. It wasn't necessarily something I had planned. And realizing how many transferable skills I had was a really important moment for me because 
it, it's like everything opened up and I could do anything. And so some of those skills could be public speaking. So, you know, I was teaching in front of a classroom of 30 kids every day, five, five times a day. So I got really good at explaining concepts and just being in front of people and not being nervous or, or shy in front of that. And so pitching is is a lot easier. Just meeting new people is a lot easier. Creating different decks or or trying to like build content in a way that is digestible is definitely a transferable skill. And even just like being able to kind of go with the flow and like get things done and the like, you know, you got two minutes here, you got five minutes there. Oh, this thing didn't work. Like, let's chuck it and get do something else. Like that happened all the time as a teacher where I would plan a whole lesson, first period, teach it and it would go horribly. And I would just like throw it out and plan something new for the rest of the day. And so just knowing how to be really flexible and just trying to do whatever it takes to like achieve the goal you have, I think is also a transferable skill. Communication and flexibility, definitely key. Yeah. Tell me more about that moment when you decided to become a founder. My journey was a little bit, uh, you know, like many, wasn't necessarily a, a straight line. I had left my classroom and really wasn't sure what I was going to do next. I just, after the like 2016 election, I just honestly felt like my classroom was small and I felt like I needed to make a bigger impact somewhere. And I wasn't sure where or how I would do that, but I was kind of at my end. And so I left and traveled for a while, worked on a, a congressional campaign in upstate New York for a bit. And then just started to learn a lot more about like, tech and building online and creator economy. And, and I was just kind of dabbling. I was like kind of building some YouTube content. I was, just, it was like all this stuff that I'd never done as a teacher, but I was like, I wonder what, what is, what's over here. And uh, from there, some of my former students, I, I got an email from, from one that was just like, Miss D, you got to help us. Like we're all going to fail this AP US history class you know, coming up in a few months. Like our teacher right now is not teaching us. It's not like it was when you were here, like, please. And so that, that kind of just sparked this, this moment where I was like, okay, let me channel some of these things I'm learning. Like I know AP, I can teach students AP US history. Let me create some content for them. Let me pull them together. Let me create, you know, we'll do some live events. And word sort of got out that I was doing that. And I would spread, you know, links on, on Reddit and Facebook groups and whatnot. And I hit, I hit this point where I was, I was driving and I remember like, I was, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I was kind of at a crossroads. I was either going to stay on this campaign or I was going to leave and just kind of throw myself into whatever this was becoming, uh, or I could go find some other job. And I just remember thinking, you know, like I had never really had a job that I had put a hundred percent of myself into because as a teacher, you you stay really uh, cautious, like you protect yourself, right? It's like, I think it's, it's a similar thing with like relationships, right? You always like hold back something because you don't necessarily want to trust this, like this situation. And I just remember thinking as a, as, in my job, I, I wonder what I would be like at a hundred percent. Like, I wonder what it would look like. And I just, that thought really got me just totally amped up and like the next day I quit the campaign. I moved back home with my mom. I had no idea what I was building at that point. Five and Bull did not look even close to what it is today. But it 
it was just this like moment of just like, I'm going to take a chance on myself. I want to work as hard as I can towards something that is mine. And it, I can build this team. I can work on something I really care about. Um, and that's, that was the moment that I did it. And it, from that moment, it was just really no regrets. It was just like, let's see what, let's see what we can do. You know, I had, I felt like I had, didn't have much to lose. I love the beauty of that question. What would I be like at a hundred percent? Yeah. It's, it's so simple, but I think a lot of people don't know, right? Like you don't see yourself at that. Like you're all you're, like work is like a thing that you go to, you clock in, you clock out. And, and it's just like, but what happens if you're like fully into something? And that was, that was enough for me. And that was the promise of a startup that had a bigger mission to help students get educated. Yeah. And even at that point, it wasn't really, I didn't really call it a startup even. I I'd honestly didn't really know enough about the the ecosystem and, and what it was that I was doing. At that point, I was like creating content and bringing kids together and supporting them. And, you know, they had AP exams in May. I knew how to help them. And so I just started helping them and I would try to build an email list and I was, you know, building using like no code tools. Like I was trying to like kind of piece it all together and have some semblance of a business going, but I didn't necessarily understand the scale at which I could build towards. And that for me came after I sort of learned about accelerators and got to join one and felt like it felt like it just opened up even more doors because I was, I just, it was like, I realized that I could, I could build at a scale that I, it's like my classroom can be so much bigger. Or like, what if I actually like build this out in a way that we could change the game for millions of students? And that's that's when I really started thinking of myself more as as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, as a startup founder, like all those types of those lenses really kind of clicked for me. What was the most important thing that you learned at Accelerator? Um, I think, I mean, honestly, I think one of the things was that I, I was just like a sponge then I was learning all kinds of just like vocab and like thing, like all the different, you know, tools that how to build things, how to, how to create a pitch deck, how to fundraise, like what all these different things are and what, how they work. But I think the thing that I learned the most was that I could be a part of that. There was nothing that was out of my reach and I think learning that some of those, like in that first question you asked, some of those skills that were transferable was really important because at first I was like, you feel a lot about imposter syndrome. And then when you realize I I was one of the better people in that program at, at just pitching, we would do a lot of pitch practice and I was good at it because I was a teacher. So it got me really thinking like, wait, I could do this. I could pitch. I could raise money. I can create a good deck. I can hire people. We could, we could just do the whole thing. And that, that kind of, yeah, I don't know. It was like, it just, it just illuminated like what was possible for me. And when you were building your first version of the product with no code tools, did you envision bringing in a engineering team later down the line? Yeah. I mean, I think I always knew that I would. I, I think at that point I, I just, I, I had I didn't wrap my head around like scaling a team quite yet. And so, and then I, we also didn't have money. And so it was very, 
the early days were really hard in, in terms of just kind of bootstrapping. Like I wasn't trying to bootstrap. I was, I was hoping to find an angel or something that I could, I could invest in it. I could invest in this, but it was very difficult. So from, from like day one to the moment that we raised a pre-seed round, it was like almost a year and a half. So it was a long time. And so for a, for a while, it was just sort of, you know, okay, Amanda, like you, you can't hire people right now. So you got to figure out what you can do in the meantime to get to a place where somebody would invest and then, and then you can hire people or I had to be creative. So even the first engineer I did find was someone that was willing to work for equity and not for salary at first because he had another job. And so finding someone that was just willing to be creative with me and like kind of be in the trenches was huge. But for a long time before that, it was just figure out how to do this on your own and you don't have time to teach yourself how to code. So find tools that you can, that you can learn. And that I, I feel like it was sort of a right place, right time, because me trying to do that 10 years ago would have been very difficult, but now there are so many different tools that allow for that. And that's, that's, I think what, what made it possible for me to do that. Yeah. No code has really changed the landscape. Any advice for someone who wants to hire an engineer like that early, early on and have them participate in the upside, but not get cash compensation? Mm -hmm. it, you have to be really careful with hiring an engineer. And I think that it, like the person I hired was amazing and, and supported me a lot in, in building this. But one of the, I would say maybe early mistakes that we made was just building things when we didn't necessarily know exactly what we needed to build yet. And that can be really costly. And so, and even now there are lingering parts of our code base of our platform that were first were from really early on and they don't make sense anymore, but they're, they are blockers and they are hard to fix down the road. And so I think the, the key with hiring your first engineer is just knowing for sure that like this is a thing you want to build and that this this piece needs to be coded because so many things right now can be like very well tested without that and so it's just first just really being like really honest with yourself of like can i can i learn more about this can i experiment without actually building it and then if you get to a point where it's like we know this is right let's just code it then it's about finding people who share the same mission that you do and who are, you know, sharing the same values and are in it for the, the same reasons that you are. Because even if, even if you have money to spend on a salary, like the early days are such a grind that you have to, you just have to be on the same page about the most important things. And those are like the why. And that's to me, the thing to look for in the early team. Alignment on purpose and mission. So critical. Yeah. I, I remember people telling me you don't actually build a system the right way until the third time you build it um, in, in software. And I, I mean, I've, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen um, many, many non-technical founders, you know, come to something and think I need to build software like really early on. And like you said, if you don't know the problem and you haven't tested it out with actual customers, you end up building stuff you don't need. Yeah. Yeah. I think it happens a lot. I would imagine. Yeah. And you brought in a co-founder partway through the journey. 
I'd love to hear about the decision to do that. In that early time, so the other thing that I did in hiring people was I just got really creative. So really early on, the way that I hired the first few people on the team, not including that engineer, that engineer was someone who had kids. And so he this was, he wasn't a part of the system. But what I did is I, I've, I found people to come live and work with me. And so I, you know, I didn't have the money and I, I had equity, but I needed... I just needed more than that. And I also was living at my mom's house back, you know, back at, at home. And so I decided, okay, let me write up an article uh, about my mission, about what I'm doing and use this to see if I can convince people. Like if I rent a house, would they come and move into this house and like build this thing with me? And and I won't be able to pay, none of us will get salary, but I'll pay rent and we'll have equity and We'll have, you know, a thing that we're building and there will be salaries as soon as we can. It was kind of a crazy idea then. Like it was definitely like a who would possibly do that moment. But what's funny is that now I think we see a couple, we see startups doing that. And there are even startups who that's their job, that's their business is like creating houses that people come live and work in. And so that's that's what I did in the really early days. And one of the very first people that reached out to me was Tan. And he he was at this perfect moment in his life where he was like, you know, I, I haven't really found this thing to dig into that feeling of like, what if I was at a hundred percent? I think that was really, he really gravitated towards that. Cause he wasn't, he, he was feeling like the jobs he was working in were not challenging enough for him. He wasn't able to like be a hundred percent in it. And so he was looking for an adventure and he like moved from Buffalo to Philly. That's where our first house was. he, he was in the grind with me from the very early days. And so there was a point a few months ago where I think I realized that the time that I was alone before Ton didn't matter anymore. Like we had already gotten so far ahead that I couldn't imagine building this without him and that he deserved that founder title as much as I did. Like this, this wasn't just mine anymore. This was ours. And so we we talked about it and and just, you know, decided to like share the the founder title and and be co-founders in this. And and at the end of the day, like it's a it's a long game. And so having someone next to you that's like really in it and and gonna make you better is important. And that was something that we had just decided to do. It wasn't wasn't at the very beginning for us, but it was later on and and it's really impacted the team in a positive way. Wonderful. Now, you just mentioned Philadelphia. I thought the company was in Milwaukee. Catch me up on the geography. <laughs> we are in Milwaukee. We were in Philly. With that first fiveable house was in Philly. Um, but actually, we were only there for like three months. And then, because I had rented this house, I was like, all right, we're going to do this. We're in Philly. We got this cool house. There were a couple of us that were living there. And we were just like promptly running out of money. <laughs> and so I had to figure out what to do. And I ended up applying to a, a different accelerator generator here in, in, in Wisconsin. We ended up doing the Madison cohort. So once we got in, it was like, we had just moved into this house, but we had to sell everything, break the lease and put everything in the car and drive over to Wisconsin. And from there, we, we just never left. We just kind of, you know, got, got into the startup community here and, and just felt like this would be a good place to, to build. And what were the criteria you used to to choose that as your yeah. location? So 
at the time, like me and Ton and, and even the other people who were, who were working with us too, we weren't really tied to any location. Like I had, I was, I grew up outside of Boston. I was living in Maine with my mom. I had taught in Oakland. So I'd been kind of all around and I, I didn't really know where I was going to land anyways. And I think we were all really open to living anywhere because there wasn't any pull towards the place. We wanted, we wanted a city, you know, we wanted there to be a, a really good like startup community. And I really wanted to find an affordable place. I we still hadn't, hadn't raised yet. And so we were really trying to stretch things out, you know, moving to a place like New York or San Francisco just didn't feel like a good idea. Even Chicago, it felt Honestly, it felt like irresponsible because I didn't have enough money to do it. And I felt like it would have cut down the time, you know, the runway that I had. And so I really wanted to find a city that was affordable and that was a place that we could build in. And so having been here and meeting so many people like in the program we did, we must have met like 100 plus people in a couple of weeks. And it, it just got to a point where it was like, well, we've already made inroads here. Like if we go anywhere else, we're going to have to start over. So if we stay here, maybe one of these people will invest. Maybe we can build the right relationships and like get the resources we need to make this happen. So that's the bet we took and we were right. I mean, a lot of the people, most of the people in our pre-seed round were from Wisconsin. And so the, those people, you know, it took another six months or so to build those relationships. But once we did, the, that was how we closed the round. That's wonderful. Um, deciding put down roots and build relationships and it paid off. Sounds like it's working well. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. I, I mean, and now that everyone's remote, you know, it's like the team is remote. Everyone lives everywhere. We don't have an office. Um, but for me personally, Milwaukee is a great place to be. You know, it's like there's there's no reason for me to like, you know, uproot and go someplace else. I, I feel like it's been a pretty good spot to be. Now, the company is only a few years old, but you've already done an acquisition, right? Yeah, we did uh, a few months ago. We, I had heard about this company called Ours that was uh, founded by a 16-year-old. And he, because he had reached out to us like, hey, I got this cool um, virtual studying platform I think your users might like. And as soon as I opened it, I, it was like, it was like seeing, we had, ideas about a platform like this, like a feature set like this, you know, several months ago, but had never really like gotten to the point where we were about to build it or or had it. And so as soon as I, I saw what he had built, it was like, I want this part of the Fiable ecosystem. This is a, this is just like a fantastic platform for students to study. And the fact that it was founded by a 16 year old is even better because he totally gets the problem. And like, let's get him on this team too. And so it, it just sort of, it, it was like kind of this perfect fit between the two of us. And we just went through the process and learn, learning along the way. I mean, for both of us, because I mean, he had never done an acquisition before, of course, and and we hadn't either. Oh, well, so we were I'm glad learning to together. <laughs> if he had already sold the company, I would feel, wow, like I really hadn't accomplished much. I, I know, honestly, sometimes I talk to him and I'm just like, I don't know what I was doing at 16, but this kid is is far and away more impressive than I was. <laughs> and he works for the company now or or he moved on? No, he works for us now. So he's still working on on the product team for uh, hours and, and is also 
kind of running that platform. So he's hiring different interns and managing some of the different uh, marketing strategies on that side of it. And so we've integrated in a way that allows him to still have some ownership around it, still have like the ability to um, build the thing that's that he that he loves. Don't just listen, get engaged. Join our giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. And who knows, the startup that you fund may be on Startups for Good one day. And you you have a lot of young people working for you, right? Like over 100 students, I think I read. Yeah, we do. So also from the early days, I knew that because I was a teacher, I had a unique you know, vantage point of what students were like, how they think, how they act. And I knew that I could, there's no way I'm going to be able to have all former teachers on the team. And so the way that I solved for that was I need to make sure that everyone on our team works directly with a high school student every day. And the reason for that is because it gives all of us the, you know, just exposure to students in a way that that is unlike anything else. And it, it helps us like develop this like deep sense of respect for them because that's really like what is the heart of our company and I think what you know how our brand feels for students is that we just we really respect them like I don't see you know I think a lot of young people and I'm sure many of us remember this as being a teenager adults will tell you like you don't know what you're talking about like you're too young or you don't, you know, you know what I mean? Like you don't, you, as a kid, you're, you're just like frustrated because you're like, maybe I do know more than you think I do. And that's, that's kind of the, that's a common experience. And so for us, we just really wanted to be like, no, we really respect the students. Like they do know what they're talking about. They do have like tons of great ideas. They should be a part of these conversations. And so we just brought them in and it's made it so that every adult on our team is building that type of trust and respect with kids and so that the kids themselves are part of every decision we make. Like they, they're on the product teams, the community teams, the student success, they're on every team. So whatever decision is happening, they're in the room. Even if, if it's small, if it's big, it gets run by many students like often. So by the time we you know go live with something, it's been like truly vetted and they are honest. They will tell you exactly how they think about something. So we appreciate that. So this is well beyond the metaphorical customer in the room, empty chair, remembering your customer. You literally have them in meetings with you. Yeah, exactly. Are you paying all these people? Oh, of course. Yeah. So we also like, you know, internships is really hard for students when they have to do unpaid ones because like, how do you pay for that? How do you do that? And so something that something else that we make sure to do is really like teach the students just about like the workplace and, and what they should expect of an employer, which is really like a fascinating place to be because some of these students, they, they've been trained over time to not value their time, right? Like they don't necessarily like you can sometimes they'll ask things like, oh, we're meeting right now. Should I log this as being a paid hour? And we're like, absolutely. Like you're working right now, like log the hour. And so just teaching them that like your time is valuable. Your employer should pay you for your time. You know, you're like you, you're the work hours that you have should be 
reasonable. Like we're teaching them some of these skills that I, I think are going to be really important for them as they grow up, because it's like, those are the things that, I, you know, can, can really change how, how a person looks at work. So you're bringing the teaching embedded in to the way you manage as well. That's fascinating. Oh yeah. Also they're learning skills that like, I didn't, I worked at like a, a party store in high school, which I loved and it taught me a lot of skills in the workplace, but I was like blowing up balloons. Like our students are learning how to build bots, chat bots on our site to manage student support, you know, like issues and, and pipelines. They're doing like product research. They're building community and discord. They're designing and like some of them are engineering things. They're So they're kind of all over the place with what they're doing. And I just think a lot about the types of skills they're building and what that will mean for them. And it's, it's like so exciting to think about. So we have a lot of like, I feel like it's like one of those like, you know, Russian nesting dolls of like all the good things that happen because we hire students. And that's, that's something that we will always do. Yeah. I really like your insight about you couldn't hire all teachers, but you could hire students and get, get maybe even more benefits from it. Yeah. I'm curious, what are the benefits of social studying versus a traditional way of doing it, you know, alone uh, at home? Yeah. I think that when you are around other people, you absorb some of the like energy from them and the, you know, obviously like you can teach each other like things, but even just being in the room. So when you think about like why people go to the library to study, some of that, you know, they're not going to talk to anybody they're just, maybe they're just there for the resources, but a lot of times you're there because the environment here is about focus and it sort of holds you accountable because everybody else is studying. So I should probably like buckle down too. Whereas if you're in your room by yourself, there's no one there to like, make sure that you're doing this assignment. And so it's really easy to kind of trail off. Um, it's hard to like say, you know, you can get really distracted by a lot of things. There's lots of other things going on. And so if you think, if you think of it that way, it's, it's very similar. So there's in our case, like on hours, sometimes hours is just like a virtual library. It's just like, I want to study and I don't trust myself in my room right now because I have a million other things I would rather be doing. So I'm going to join this room. Everybody else is studying. That's going to make it easier for me to just stay on track. The other side of that is I need help. I want to be around people who can answer my questions. And so we sort of think of those two different use cases as being really important because it just helps the student just not feel alone and, and have people around them in whatever environment they, they want. Does it also offer virality or network effects for the, for the business? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it definitely does because it, when you join a, a study room, you, you may want to share that with people, you know, or you may want to share with people you don't know on your social media channels. So there's definitely a like referral system that happens because of it. Um, and I think generally like young people like sharing things that they like because they want to be the one that, that told you to do it or right? like that. It's like a kind of the, the race to be the, the, 
person in the friend group that that like suggested it so i think that's it's helpful right like it is i think i think that's why we see a lot of just like companies now with like social and community spaces it's just it's it's a it's good it's good to like bring people together build those relationships and it's it's a powerful like channel to find more students and more bring in more users on that so those referrals and community spaces I think those fit really well with freemium pricing, which is your approach. Exactly. Yeah. So, and we've always felt like, you know, being accessible is a huge part of what we have to do because just like in that library analogy, you, if you go to a library, like you have, you have access to resources. It's a whole world of knowledge that's there. And so that was something that we just felt like had to be true the the resource of most of the resources we have are free and that has to continue because one it should be like learning like that should be free and should be accessible but two everyone's creating content so competing on content is very hard and then on the flip side like space to meet people should also be accessible like we shouldn't put a paywall around the study room itself but maybe there are other ways that we can build you know paid spaces on this and there can be that like freemium piece of this but it's it's really important that there's it's just really important that there's accessibility i i never wanted to build something that my mom couldn't afford for me and that's a huge driving factor for me and for tom like for the two of us like we think about that a lot like we are building for the students we were and that's that's a huge driving factor that allows us to make this a very accessible space for students so accessibility is important. How, yeah. how do you pick the dimension uh, along which you have your freemium or like wh- what it is that you charge for? Yeah, it's it can be hard because it's hard to know like where to draw the lines. I think we find the most value, find things that are valuable, find things that don't necessarily change, Try try not to affect the access level of things. I think that's something that we're learning along the way and we've experimented a lot with in the last few years. And I'm sure in a year, in two years, what we charge for could look different as we build out the product more, as we find more, you know, more ways to create value in a space without like limiting the access. Um, and, And even as we like, just study some of what other companies do in this space too. I think there's really interesting trends from especially companies that work with young people, but things like Roblox and Discord and Twitch and all these different channels that have found ways to monetize in a way that it's really, it's just interesting, right? It's like you can get, what would a student pay for to use like a certain emoji in a chat, for example? And so like thinking in, in, in that kind of way and being for us, we're just willing to like experiment with things and sort of follow what, what will work best for the student. And what have you learned in that process? We've learned that there are things that students are willing to pay for and there are things that are not, they're not. So I think like content is an interesting one because there is just so much of it, right? If you're a student, you can get free videos for anything on YouTube, TikTok, you know, between those two, you can find the video you need. So we've learned like in the very early days, we were, we were charging for videos and that's, we had all our videos behind a paywall. 
And it got to a point where I was like, hey, we got to open up this paywall. And so we, we like removed that paywall. We were so excited because we're like, we're going to have free resources. It's going to be great. We're going to be the only ed tech company that's free. And then COVID hit two weeks later. <laughs> so we were like, you know, it was an interesting timing because everybody then made their ed tech platform free. Um, but we had already just learned, like, there are certain types of content that you can charge for. For example, maybe a live event. And there's certain that you shouldn't. And for us, that meant some of the videos and study guides. Like, we just decided not to put paywalls around them. And the business has a strong seasonality to it being tied with the academic calendar and when testing happens. I'm curious, how do you manage that? Yeah, so we, in starting Fiveable, we really focused on AP classes because that was sort of our wedge into high school. And now we're we're going way beyond AP. And so there's times in the year, like every season for a student is just different and they care about different things and they need different things and their engagement levels are different. And it's just about us being flexible with that. And so one is providing resources all year that kind of meet those needs. But two, just for us understanding that like the summer is the summer. There, there are students that are around the world that are not in summertime right now and they'll be active. There are students who take summer school or different classes over the summer. So they'll be active. But for a lot of students, summer is their break and they don't want to be like studying and that's fine. Like you should get outside and, and not worry about these things. And then when we get back to school, then things really pick up again. And so it's really just about us being flexible with how we are laying out the different products that we support throughout the year and the content that we create for students around the year. Um, and just like how we are there to support them. And that's, that's the key to it. So there, it will always be an ebb and a flow of the different semesters. And that's true for any, any company that's in the educational spaces. Um, but it's sort of like for us, just, just understanding like, what is the, what, what do kids care about this week? And the more we understand that, the better. Yeah. I asked because when I had a business serving higher education, we would, I don't know, triple our staff or more during certain times of the year. And yeah. it, it took a lot of effort to, you know, staff up and then say, thank you everyone for helping out during our busy time. We're not busy anymore. And, and yeah. please come back next season. Like that whole process just took uh, tons of time and organization. Yeah. The spring is definitely a, a very busy time for us. And so we definitely had more, more staff in the spring than we do in other times, especially like the the student staff. And so it's just, it's exactly that. It's just trying to like support the different needs at that time. But also it's sort of like the, in the spring, because there's so many students that are using our site, you need like your support team to be like really well staffed. Whereas in the summer, the number of chats that come in are far less, but the content team can be really staffed because the summertime is when a lot of students have the time to, to create content. And so part of it is just shifting the students into different roles depending on the season and depending on our needs. Ah, that helps. I like it. Yeah. Now, when you were telling the story of early on, you were talking about trying to make it a business. 
even before you conceptualize it as a startup. I'm curious, did you ever consider a nonprofit or what you always knew you wanted to be for profit? Um, I, I did think about it when I first started. I think the, the key for me was that I needed to follow the resources and that, you know, because when I was just starting out, I didn't have like a friends and family round, you know, there was nothing like that. I didn't have any rich uncle that could, you know, bankroll this for me. Like there was nothing like that. And so I just, I had to follow the resources to get me to the next step. And I just knew that like scale was important because there were so many students I wanted to reach. And that's really the like lens that I came at it from of like, if I'm, you know, there's millions of students. So if I'm only reaching a couple hundred or a couple thousand, like I I need to do more to get to more students. So the first thing that, that became available to me was that accelerator. And that was $20,000, which was like the world to me then. And I, I had, I joined it because I, I, you know, I did some research. I did a ton of research before going through like, what is this? Do I want to go this path? Like, what are all my other options? And I think what I learned was that in order to build the company I wanted at the scale I wanted, at the speed that I wanted to do it at, venture made the most sense and for-profit made the most sense. If I were to go the nonprofit route, I would still need all those same resources, but it would be harder for me to, to get them, to fundraise in that way. And so that was the decision that I made. And I think um, and you know, I'm sure you talk to many other founders who do this as well. And I think for me, it was just, you know, like this is a means to an end. We can build a company that that does a lot of good for a lot of people, and doesn't have to be nonprofit. Yeah, I like how you said that. Following the resources. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get pushback or have any challenge uh, with venture investors? You know, wondering if this could be venture scale. Oh, for sure. That I mean, the pre-seed round took so long to raise because it was really difficult to get people bought into it. Part of that was that we had to learn how to pitch a huge vision. You know, I think that that's something that you learn over time. And especially like for me, it was just truly trying to understand how big this could get and being able to articulate that to other people. You know, like I had to understand the venture math and the, and the, what investors needed to see out of this. But also we like, it was very difficult. Like, especially at that time it was pre COVID and there was a difference. Like people were nervous about ed tech because they had either been burned before or they didn't see a, a, a clear path for a massive business because most ed tech companies would sell to schools and the schools are, are just like notoriously hard to build a sales pipeline with. Um, that was true for K to 12 and for higher ed. And so as soon as I walk in the room and I'm like, I'm building an ed tech company, they were like, Oh God. And we weren't even selling to schools, but it was like that, that was their mental model. And so one was just like, but we're trying to build a consumer company. We're trying to build a community company, which even community companies three years ago were not as like widespread as they are today. And so I think that we, we happened to be building at a time when a lot of the trends that we were we were like seeing as very possible and necessary in this space, they caught up with us, right? And so as soon as COVID hit, then it was like, 
now now all these education companies just like exploded everybody wants to invest in ed tech and community companies and social and so it was sort of like all these things like clicked and that made it a lot easier after the fact but before it was very difficult and i would definitely get people who would say this should be a nonprofit and i was like you know why you need the same things but i can build i can build this faster in this way and I want that speed because the students don't have time for me to wait. Yeah. And your timing with everyone's change and understanding about what EdTech could mean and how important it is, uh, has been impeccable. Call it luck, call it skill. I don't know. You were quoted as saying that COVID is a chance to rebuild the education system. Do you think we still have that opportunity? Have we, have we seized on that opportunity? We have definitely not seized on the opportunity. I think some folks have and some schools have, but I think it's it's definitely still there. It hasn't the door hasn't closed by any means. I, I think in general, like we we don't know how long we will be living with COVID, probably forever. We don't know how long this will actually impact us, like as dramatically as it is today. It's obviously t- you know already been. <laughs> stretched out further than anyone could have imagined. And I think it's just when if, when everything first shut down, everything first happened, it was this global moment. Like you you don't get a lot of those. It happens every few decades or so. And and global is is like that's even more rare. But to have a moment where everyone everything stops and everyone is like questioning like all the systems that we have. It it was it clearly showed that in education, in healthcare, in all, in the ways that we support different um, communities, in housing, and there was like it was like every single industry was impacted. And you are looking around, thinking like, what we're doing doesn't work. It couldn't hold up to this, you know. Like, how many teachers have to leave the classroom? How many parents are frustrated? How many students are frustrated? It's like it just forces you to just really go back to the roots and think like, okay, well, what is the purpose of school? Like, why do we have school? What do we actually want for young people? What is, what do we need this to be? And, you know, it, it just kind of, I think it just makes it so that you just start to question like why you do things like just because you've always done them that way doesn't mean that that's the way that we should continue to do them. And especially in industries that haven't adapted technology as much. I think it's even more um, obvious that there's these gaps and the ways that we can fill them are just by rethinking the structures and the systems. Uh, you know, like they're the students that were hurt the most through COVID and who are still hurting the most are the most marginalized students. So something we're doing is not working. And in this case, it's a lot of things. And I I hope that this is a moment where people shoot for the moon, you know, like rebuild, start, try something new. It doesn't have to be the way that it used to be. And that's, I think we've seen a lot of companies thinking in that way. Like there's so many like very cool, uh, you know, just innovations that come have come out of this last year plus. And I hope that the school systems will do the same. Like take the time to experiment. Yeah, this isn't what you wanted it to be, but let's try something new. You know, maybe it works. Maybe we learned something that could be better than what we had. 
an inspiring call to action there. I think that's where we'll wrap up. Thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to follow up with you or, or stay in touch with a company, where can they check in online? Yeah. So you can see us at fiveable.me. That's our website. And um, on social media, I am at Amanda Do Amanda. And that would be uh, my Twitter. So you can follow me as well or, or any of the, the Fiveable channels are all at Think Fiveable. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.